I'm Nigel Gaiman, the founder and chairman of British Educated Life Scientists, better known as BELLS. BELLS is a unique purpose-led collaborative initiative that is strengthening connections with British educated life scientists who have risen to positions of power and influence in the health and life sciences around the world. We work to expand their awareness of and involvement with the UK health and life sciences. Our URL is bellsconnector.org. This is episode number two of Bell's Brief Chats. And it's our first interview of a leading light from the Bell's community. Episodes are available in both video and podcast versions. Our guest today is Dr. Clive Meanwell, located at this time in New Jersey. Clive was the founder and former CEO of the medicines company, which was acquired in early 2020 by Novartis. And he's now working on a new venture, an investment company called Population Health Partners. So welcome to our conversation, Clive. Perhaps the best thing is to start with, you know, where you were brought up, uh, what made you want to be a doctor, that sort of initial part of your journey. Yeah. Hello, Nigel. Um, I was born in Lincolnshire in, in a town called Louth, which happens to be on Greenwich Meridian. Um, those who live there know that. <laughs> and the, um, the zero degree line goes through the foyer of the hospital that I was born in. So north of, Lo- I think we could honestly say north of London. Um, uh, when I was uh, about seven, my parents moved us to Sawbridgeworth, just north of London, where my father was a teacher in a what used to be called an approved school. And then later in his career, we moved to Birmingham, where he took over the leadership of a of a school, um, of, of an approved school uh, in, in Birmingham and worked for the Birmingham City Council as, as, uh, as an educator slash caregiver. My mum was a school teacher too, uh, worked uh, in junior schools. And uh, in fact, everybody in my family became teachers except for me. I was the failure. What about um, your decision to sort of go on to medical school? Sort of uh, what do you think led to that? Uh, Watching MASH on TV. uh, I think uh, as a kid, I was quite uh, enamored with uh, Hawkeye and Trapper. And I thought they were the coolest uh, smart people I knew. And... uh, I was very attracted to that sort of irreverent humor that uh, that they had about medicine. And all my friends in, in grammar school kind of had the same feeling. So it, it seemed like the thing to do. Uh, I'd, I'd never heard of other things like venture capital and investment banking and the things that uh, might otherwise have attracted you. But um, it, it was an exciting idea to become a doctor and uh, even more exciting to be um, one with a good sense of humor. And you stayed local going to the University of Birmingham? I did. You know, I, I messed up my A-levels the first time. I took my eye off the ball academically and uh, had to redo them because uh, so, uh, I couldn't get the grades to get in. But Birmingham Medical School, thank goodness, held, a, held a, a slot for me and said, if you hit the following grades, we'll take you next year. So I went back and redid my uh, A-levels and, and th- thankfully uh, hit the mark that time. So... Uh, It was very natural to stay in Birmingham. On a serious note, but Birmingham at the time was highly ranked by WHO as a clinical teaching centre. You know, I'd I'd interviewed in London, but Birmingham had a very high caseload of very serious diseases, you know, lung diseases, heart diseases. Uh, Although it had secondary and tertiary referrals, it was real bread and butter medicine, a great place to train. Uh, 
and a lot of clinical experience as a medical student and a, as a junior hospital doctor. So it was a very good place, uh, you know, compared to the more academic environment that you that you naturally have around London medical schools. Now, I know that you were a keen sportsman at the time as well. And the reason I know is that you and I played rugby against each other years and years ago, too many to recall. Can you expand on that? Were you just interested in rugby or was it other sports as well? Well, I think being too interested in rugby was one of the reasons why I flunked my aim a for first time, to be honest with you. Uh, rugby and everything that goes with that, shall we say. Um, but um, I, I was I was dead lucky because, um, you know, I, I took a gap year and joined a club called Mosley at a time when a very, very fantastic fullback called Sam Doble was uh, was the, the, the kicker. Uh, Sam sadly died uh, of, a, of a cancer, and uh, I found myself in the first team, you know, at the age of 19, playing Leicester in my first game, and uh, you know, obviously against Dusty Hare and people like that. So it was just a fantastic uh, mm -hmm. door that opened for me, and uh, you know, it, it, I had a great time. I played for Mosley, then I moved down to London Irish, and. Uh, enjoyed a, a short but uh, lovely career in um, amateur rugby. Yes, as it was then. So, I mean, then, so after medical school, a jump into the NHS? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, and uh, all of my friends in, in the US are astonished that, you know, my medical school was essentially paid for and I gladly became a house officer in, in Birmingham hospitals, uh, the general Sally Oak of the day, which is all now in that fantastic new hospital in, in, in near the medical school that's been built. Uh, and uh, the training was everything I'd hoped. Uh, the amount of clinical exposure, the teaching uh, was great. The atmosphere in the school was great. Uh, so it was a, a, a wonderful way to begin a, clini a clinical career. And I quickly moved into research. Um, I got interested in cervix cancer mainly. And um, through mentoring i got into a research fellowship at the west midlands cancer research campaign center at the at the qe and uh, did research into human papillomavirus and the incidence and etiology and treatment of cervix cancer which was pretty topical at the time this was before we had an hpv vaccine of course and yeah. at the time when we were we were quite struggling to know whether we had a an epidemic of new type cervix cancer, which was one of the fashionable ideas. Turned out we didn't, but we were, of course, screening more, so picking up patients much younger. It looked like we, were, we had a bubble of, of incidents, but in fact, it was a, an aberration of testing. And it also looked like we had a new virus kicking around, which is somewhat topical today, uh, HPV-16, HPV-18, which is what I worked on. And we published that you could find HPV-16 in normal epithelium which of course it, it, you must be able to do if if it causes cancer it has to be there before the cancer starts so it was an exciting uh program uh we also did a lot of cancer chemotherapy clinical trials uh that was the first um, exposure i really had to running clinical studies and then um as it often ha does happen industry came calling and you may obviously made the decision to move into industry yeah, it was a, an interesting series of, of events. I had really enjoyed doing research. And as much as I enjoyed the bedside, um, I found 
combining the two uh, earnestly quite difficult. And because I'd started to do a lot of research, a lot of clinical trials, uh, I was able to set up a few grants with colleagues. But we always seem to, despite getting good uh, reviews on our grant requests, seem to get about a tenth of the money that we wanted. <laughs> and my friends in the industry didn't seem to have that problem. They seemed to have mm -hmm. not limitless resources, but they seemed to have the kind of resources you needed to do excellent, particularly clinical research. And so I was drawn by that uh, and the ability to get something done uh, and uh, moved across. It was also true in those days that medical oncology, where I was, you know, drifting, you know, was not a well-established um, discipline in the UK yet. There were relatively few academic posts available. And so looking around and seeing many more research fellows who were better than I was, I didn't feel my chances of getting a professorship were that high, so I moved over to Rush in Switzerland and joined their oncology and virology clinical research group. And so, I mean, so you moved from the UK, you started this odyssey and you went to Switzerland and then um, got sent to Palo Alto. Um, that must have been quite a cultural shift for, for you, and, but clearly you must have found it um, something that really stimulated you. Yeah, a few things happened between. I mean, first of all, I got to the I got to Basel and was put on a few projects and was a little bit disappointed with what I saw. But um, uh, quickly, Roche at the time signed a co-development deal with Amgen for mm -hmm. a drug called GCSF that became Nupigen. And so I moved over to Thousand Oaks first in Southern California to join that team. And that's really where I cut my teeth on clinical trials and regulatory uh, you know regulatory applications and so on worked as an intrinsic part of the amgen group and then rather than recycling to r&d after we got the drug approved in us europe and japan with kirin i carried on and went into marketing with the same product which i found that even more interesting because as interesting as running trials is um, teaching people how to use products properly in in the clinic is even more fascinating at times and the post-approval issues uh, I found very important. So I moved across. Then I became head of worldwide regulatory at Roche for a number of years, which is probably the best job in the industry, in my view, because you sit astride the R&D organization and the commercial organization and try to translate between the two. Fascinating role. And it was a time of great change in Europe as the centralized procedures were coming in. And obviously, Roche was a, an early mover in biotechnology so we were able to work with you know people like nipsey in, in in the uk and the uk agency at the time was very progressive so it was a it was a wonderful um journey as europe became you know a single uh, drug approval system uh, for mm -hmm. biologics and new new chemical entities uh, that we took part in fully um after that we acquired syntax and that's when i went to i was I was banished to California uh, uh, by uh, uh, Mr. Franz Humer, who was the CEO of Rush by then, and uh, had a very interesting time there. I, I, I must say both my stints in California, both at Amgen and at Syntex, uh, uh, then Roche Biosciences, were very much shaping of my attitudes to biotech and, you know, have stayed with me. And then... Uh, uh, a shift to uh, the venture capital world with MPM. 
that's that's right. I, I you know, I, I, I got drawn back to the idea of, of biotech, left Roche, um, spent a time at uh, MPM, setting up the first venture fund there, which took me more onto the finance side, uh, gave me, you know, a little bit of exposure to that world. And uh, I've sort of been in that uh, interface ever since. From MPM, we started the medicines company, which, uh, you know, has occupied a lot of my time the last 15 to 20 years. And at the same time, I got connected with the Bellevue Group in Switzerland and have been heavily involved with a fund called BB Biotech for the last uh, 16 or 17 years. And the whole concept of the medicines company, um, what was that sort of predicated on at the time? Was it a, a thought process or an asset that led you to do that? It, it was a thought process. We, we felt that um, there were ways to um, develop drugs more efficiently than we could in big pharma, uh, both um, structural, organizational, scientific, and fr frankly, just asking uh, the right questions. And we also recognized that Big Pharma had some great drugs in its pipeline that it, could, it couldn't develop them all, mm -hmm. uh, and that we could potentially license some and develop them and bring them to market, either with their help or, or, or independently if we, if we chose products that were focused. In, in, in that case, we focused on the hospital. Uh, and so we built a business around that, uh, and uh, the company did quite well overall. Yeah. And, and fair to describe or accurate to describe the ride at Medicines Company as quite a roller coaster. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think we yeah. could say that. Uh, you know, I had the I had the uh, the whole entrepreneurial experience, as they call it. And uh, as you know, Peter Drucker called it in one of his books. I think he described it as gut wrenching. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, and and I can attest that it was. Yeah. <laughs> And then you, the, the tie-up obviously ultimately came with Al Nylum over in Clisseron, um, proved to be quite a pivotal moment. Um, you must have uh, presumably paths crossed with another member of the, the Bells community, Akshay Vaishnav, at yeah. uh, Al Nylum as well, because it's interesting seeing the, the, the touch of Bells along the whole, the whole value stream here. Yeah, very much, very much so. That's how I met Akshay. But of course, my relationship started with John Mariganori, who had been yep, yep. at Biogen when, in fact, not many people joined these dots. But John was the patent holder and inventor of Bivalarudin, which was Angiomax, which is what we yep. built the medicines company okay. around. And uh, so it was very natural to stay in touch with John. And then when he when he became uh, when he got uh, Al Nilam off the ground uh, and was looking for a partner for in Clisseran, at a time when RNA interference wasn't terribly fashionable, I mean, that too went through its cycles. Um, yeah. John was looking for a partner for that, and we were in cardiovascular medicine, albeit not in cholesterol lowering. And so we licensed it from them. Uh, and uh, both John and I think felt it was a, it was a great partnership to, to continue, if you like. So mm -hmm. um, yes, definitely met Akshay there. I'll tell you a funny story. So in the first few meetings, um, you know, uh, we we asked uh, Akshay to supply us with some reading materials. He sent some pretty fancy molecular biology stuff. I took it on a plane and I couldn't actually get through it. I had to look up words all the time. <laughs> I, mean, I did some molecular biology in Birmingham, but it, but it, it had moved on a bit. Um, and so we actually, actually had to have a tutorial from Akshay uh, 
so that we could then read these papers he gave us. And I, I took them on another plane ride and I could just about get through them thanks to his, uh, thanks to his teaching. <laughs> Hopefully, thank, uh, pr probably a long plane ride, I would guess. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It yeah. took me a while to get through those papers. And then, um, obviously, um, a, a decision was made to work with the UK on Inclycerin. Um, can you take us through your thought process of that? Well, the circumstances were very interesting. We, you know, we were working with Manchester, actually, with, with the team up there, the innovation group up there, and... Uh, you know, we were intrigued by the energy level in, in, in British medicine, which, you know, I must say I was extremely impressed with. And um, so uh, Martin Gibson introduced me to Lord David Pryor, who was, I think, quite supportive of what was happening in Manchester uh, and also with companies like Northwest eHealth that Martin had started in, in uh, you know, with special data tools using the NHS platform. And... Uh, my first meeting with Lord Pryor was interesting because he asked me if I could give him any free drug, and I said no, uh, but maybe we could work something else out. <laughs> and and uh, you know, one thing led to another, and and thanks to uh, Lord Pryor's leadership, and and of course John Bell, who you know, the, it's an extraordinary pairing when you meet them both. Uh, we're able to set up a, a broad group of people associated with the NHS, with the UK Office of Life Sciences. Uh, MHRA, NICE, and others, including, of course, Oxford, who were willing to come together and look at the problem in a different way with us, which was that um, cardiovascular disease in any country, but including the UK, is a population health problem. Um, and that to solve it, you have to look at it from a population level, meaning uh, in the UK, for example, we have 700,000 people who have ASCVD, they've had a heart attack, they've had a stroke, and who have um, you know, LDL levels that are not yet controlled adequately with, with um, statins. And you, know, you, can, you can start at that end of the stick or you can start at the other end of the stick and say, how much per patient are we gonna charge? Well, that doesn't work because there's so many of them that to, to, to do some kind of commercial arrangement and to study it, you have to step back, I think, and, and, and be a little bit broader minded. So with that group of people from the UK, we had a series of meetings chaired by uh, Lord Pryor and, and, and Sir John in which we could really whack through the issues and really try to find solutions. So we ended up with three uh, work streams. One was um, actually to, to set up clinical trials on the NHS platform that would allow us to study large populations at very reasonable pricing. Uh, but in a way that fit with the way the NHS was caring for those people and, and using the NHS data systems to find them. And of course, the Oxford team was instrumental in that notion. And secondly, um, to create a consortium of like-minded manufacturing technology experts who wanted to create a more efficient way to make RNA drugs. Uh, they're not cheap to make but mm -hmm. there are ways to scale it and obviously for population health products you have to scale it considerably and so cost becomes a real issue and then thirdly with a go-to-market strategy that would be population based and uh, obviously working with the NHS commercial particularly Blake Dark and his team who frankly were extraordinarily uh, constructive uh, finding ways to make it cost effective for the NHS obviously 
you know, the NICE uh, assessment is, is pivotal. We did early scientific advice for them or with them. We were quickly able to reach, you know, um, ISA agreements. And then from then on, it was a question, well, who do we really want to treat and how many people really need this? And that was a very rational population-based discussion and ultimately decision, which led to three elements in a deal, the manufacturing, the clinical development, and the uh, commercial arrangements that were announced, um, um, let me see, January 2020, about a year ago, and which um, mm -hmm. I'm th thrilled to say that Novartis has um, you know, continue to try to implement. So uh, a lot of exciting um, outcomes there, I think. And I think it's not the last deal of this kind they're going to do. Um, of course, they recently announced a Grail deal, which is yeah. similarly exciting. And I think there's probably going to be more, more to come because the NHS with 60 million people under care, with a management team that's determined to be uh, progressive, although it's easy to find fault with the NHS and even even their leadership doesn't say it's perfect when you get the whole English or British government contingency all these different groups working together it's probably the most efficient way to access 60 million customers you can imagine other than yeah. selling other than selling covid vaccines to 450 million Europeans at the European Commission you know th these are large customer groups represented by people who are trying to do it strategically and I think that, to me, is the best way forward for population health-based uh, technologies. You know, going to individual GPs and saying, you know, here's my new drug, do you want to buy it? I, I think those days are over, at yeah. least in, in, in terms of success. Specialty selling, specialty development, rare disease oncology may, may be different, may be different. But if you want to treat hundreds of thousands or even millions of people, you have to come together with the decision makers early, and, and frankly, with a completely open set of cards. Uh, yeah. And um, that was, was something we were able to do together, uh, thanks to, you know, credit to those people. And um, hopefully a lot of Brits will get in Clisteran uh, at a good price um, and help them, uh, you know, avoid heart attacks and strokes. Now, quite a lot of the management team um, at Medicines Company were are Brits. <laughs> um, who've been through the system and it's one of our beliefs at Bell's you know is that people like yourselves and, and the people in the management team who have been through British training in UK universities um, are a, a community that needs to be thought of as a community of impact in the UK um, and nudging plays an important part in that and so I mean did that assist i mean whilst you obviously went through the system did the fact you had a lot of your management team with a uk background also help this process along no, unquestionably um on the manufacturing side john richards trained at oxford yeah. on the health economics side stephanie plant uh, was a physician who trained at the royal free originally and uh, they were both instrumental linda rootkin was the project manager of the whole thing she was also a brit I think she got her degree in Surrey. So mm -hmm. there was quite a, you know, we spoke the language for sure. Um, and, um, you know, we had quite a few laughs as well as a consequence, because when you're a British person living in America, you have a certain special view of, you know, the, the old home. And yeah. when you're, and when you're English or British, uh, looking at America from London or Oxford, you also have a certain view. And, uh, 
it's fun to talk about. So yeah. I, I think it was important. And I think the connections that were made and the friendships that were created as a result, uh, including in Manchester, by the way, uh, were all you know, difficult to qualify, of course, but yeah. essential to get things done. You know, I always like to say that trust is, is not about liking people, although it's wonderful if you do, but it's about being able to share um, uh, competence, uh, to, sh to be consistent with one another, to be transparent with one another, and ultimately to have some sense of mutuality that you can build on. And I think that, that those four ca characteristics really came through strongly in that program. And uh, hopefully, um, you know, we'll be able to do it again sometime. And it's interesting, obviously, with the Novartis acquisition early last year and seeing their investment in the White City area now in the UK, it seems to have stimulated their interest. And I think I was struck by the phrase used by the, the um, Novartis CEO, um, imagining new medicine um, that seems to be the tack that's being taken. Yeah, I, I, look, their commitment to the UK is very clear. I, I've, I've been to those offices. Uh, they've got a great team in the UK, and uh, yeah. you know, the, the, you know, to some extent, what we showed them could have been regarded as a bit of a fantasy when they, when we first described it. But they, from the CEO, uh, the worldwide CEO downwards, and certainly through the UK organisation. People got on board very quickly and said, "Let's see if we can make this work." And right. you know, with, with with any luck, they will. And obviously, the drug has now been approved in the EU and will be, I think, uh, available very shortly, if not already, in the UK. And hopefully, it can be distributed um, in that way. Plus, you know, more ongoing clinical research can be done. We arranged for a primary prevention trial to be run in the UK, again on the NHS backbone with Oxford. Uh, Professor Rory Collins at the helm with Martin Landre, who, of course, has done the recovery trial astonishingly well. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so I think it, it, it looks very promising indeed. It's early days, but uh, I, I'm delighted that there's so much commitment on all sides to the idea. Excellent. And which brings us to the present day in your latest venture, Population Health Partners. Uh, and interestingly, in, in concert with another Brit, um, Ian Reid. <laughs> Yeah, well, Ian, and I, you know, Ian and I have known each other a while, and, and and from time to time, Ian would invite me into Pfizer to talk about clinical trial efficiency, and I would leave the building with three knives in my back uh, because <laughs> management. I, I wasn't always saying things that his management team wanted to hear, but Ian was a yeah, good sport yeah. about it, and and frankly, so were they. So we got to know each other that way, and I, you know, I reached out to Ian, to, who obviously had retired from his Pfizer job ask him if he'd be interested in working with us. And I was I was very pleased. I mean, Ian um, obviously has a, in the UK a bit of a, a, a Darth Vader image, you know, the, 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 the sort of chasing after AstraZeneca for a year and closing down Sandwich were not the most uh, popular moves in the UK. But I, I think Ian is an extraordinary businessman. He's obviously very, very successful. But importantly, he sees what I see, and that is we've got to find better ways to bring population health products to market, we yeah. have to we have to invent new go-to-market models. We have to improve the efficiency of development, and we have to improve the efficiency of manufacturing. All of those areas in those inside out, and so we decided we would you know found this thing together and uh, uh, and try to make some investments in the population health space. That's not to say we wouldn't invest in oncology or rare diseases. 
but we generally think those are heavily invested in at the moment. Therefore, valuations are on the high side. And relatively speaking, there's less investment in um, the prevalent diseases, cardiovascular disease and so on, that ultimately is what's killing us. Um, yep. So we're trying to address that problem. Some drug companies are doing it. I, I mentioned Vaz and the Novartis team are clearly across the board. They're doing rare disease. They're doing SMA on one end and they're doing you know, cardiovascular disease at the other end. Other companies have decided to stay more in the realm of oncology and rare disease because it suits their growth strategy. But mm -hmm. we think it's slightly unbalanced and that um, more investment in prevalent disorders is required. But for the return on capital to be as attractive for population health as it is for rare disease and cancer, um, something has to change. And what that something is is three things. One, uh, clinical trial efficiency has to be improved tenfold, which we think is doable. Uh, manufacturing, particularly of complex uh, products, uh, uh, peptides, proteins, antibodies, cell therapies, have to be dramatically uh, brought down in cost. And, um, and of course, the go-to-market model has to change because generating demand bottom-up with the sales force is costly. And if the uh, contracted physicians, in the case of the UK, the GPs, are not empowered to prescribe, you're really banging your head against the wall and wasting money. So if you don't get linked with the leadership uh, of a health system, the UK being a good example, um, you can't really expect that investment in personal promotion to pay off. So we think those three things, improved efficiency of trials, improved thoughtfulness about manufacturing capacity and cost, and really different ways to go to market are going to be necessary, even disruptive ways, in order to um, really allow this incredible biology that we've unpacked in the last 20 or 30 years to impact broader populations. Yeah. Well, that's quite a journey. Um, I guess I'd, I'd close by just asking from a from a both a strategic and an emotional point of view, um, you've already, I guess, articulated your strong feeling of support for what the UK Health and Life, life Sciences is today. Um, and I assume that you are as bullish as I am about what the opportunity for the UK life sciences is, um, not, notwithstanding the fact we've just got so much great research and great science being conducted there, but then the NHS as a true differentiator. Yeah, look, I think that um, there are very few countries that have got such a strategic viewpoint on life sciences. And, you know, at risk of um, uh, sounding a bit partial, you know, I, I give the credit to, to, to John Bell for dragging together a life science strategy for the country, mm -hmm. heavily supported by the government, by universities, by drug companies, by device companies, and so on. So I think that's the first thing is a cohesive strategy is there. It's already paid dividends. Secondly, I think you're right, having a unique population base with a single, uh, most, most part a single provider and a single insurer allows um, the UK to really position itself as a powerhouse for, for, for studying. And the universities are darn good. I mean, you yes. know, it, it's a world-class, uh, you know, no question, world-class academic and scientific environment. 
Uh, and those things plus a government that's progressive where you have, I mean, you know, unlike most in the industry, I'm a great fan of NICE, maybe because I had a good experience working with them more than once. But I think when you, when you work uh, collectively or collaboratively like that, that system is going to win every time, I think. And uh, mm -hmm. there's no reason now with Brexit why the UK cannot, um, you know, achieve its rather ambitious goals of becoming, um, you know, one of the top two or three life science countries in the world. It's right up there in the top five to six for sure already. But yeah. to become, you know, a dominant uh, top three player, perhaps with China and the US, I think is quite feasible, quite feasible. Yeah, and I think um, I, I would close by just um, giving an opinion about about the UK universities, and uh, it's a it's a little stat I use with my American friends, particularly that it, a country that is the size of New England has thirty around thirty of the top two hundred universities in the world, yeah. and the geography allows you very quickly, seamlessly to link to each of those centers of excellence. And, um, you know, whilst the Golden Triangle is fantastic, there are so many other great assets around the UK, like Manchester, like Liverpool, you know, that you've had experience with. So, like Birmingham. Uh, that's why I'm bullish about it. And that's why uh, we formed Bells many moons ago, because we felt um, you were an asset class that should be utilized mercilessly by the UK. <laughs> so, well, Dr. Clyde, uh, this has been fascinating and thank you. You're welcome and thanks for all you're doing, Nigel.